Amen. Can I just say thank you for having me this evening? It's really great to be with you to worship um, tonight. I send greetings, as I hope Gethin did from this morning, from um, our church in Ealing. So it's, it's really good to um, join with you tonight. There is something really tragic about wasted work, isn't there? Wasted work. We get angry when we hear about wasted work, wasted taxpayers' money, the Millennium Dome kind of syndrome. Uh, We've all seen that kind of thing, haven't we? All of that time and all of that money and all of that effort, the big budgets blown Wasted. Wouldn't it be ever so tragic if our lives told the same story? Pouring all that we have into the projects of of life, toiling, working, worrying, rising early, going to bed late to rest, the daily grind, shattering ourselves for our homes and our families and, and even this church only for it to be wasted work. Wouldn't that be tragic? Imagine the possibility, says Solomon. How could someone get into that situation? What kind of work is is wasteful work? Well, wasted work is work done independently from God. The psalm begs this question, who really does the real work of any value in your life? Is it you? Who is the one that you can't do without to make life work? To make church work? Is it the guy at the front? Is it you or someone else? God wants us to say to us this evening, actually, I am your everything. I am in charge. I am the one that you cannot do without. He wants to tell us, I think, three things in this psalm here. First of all, he says to us, watch your false sense of security. Watch your false sense of security. I don't know what it's like in your workplace, but there is often someone who always holds things together, isn't there? And if they don't show up, if they're ill or or they're on holiday, whatever, everything seems to fall apart. I wonder if you've got someone like that in your workplace. Maybe actually it is you, um, and when you're not there, things just don't seem to work out. But who, who really is indispensable to the workforce of your life? Who is indispensable to to the life of this church? Worst case scenario, they're not here. The person doesn't show up. If if the answer to that question is someone sat here, or someone who's usually here, this psalm tells us we are deluding ourselves. We are working under a false sense of security in that case. Because what it tries to do is get us to imagine what it would be like, hypothetical situation, if the Lord didn't show up. Just imagine for a moment, says God, what it would be like if I stopped working. If you lost me for a moment, if I pulled the sickie, what would your life's work amount to? 
Well, one word sums it up in this psalm. I don't know if you spotted it. The word vain. It's there, isn't it, a few times? Vain. It just means um, wasted, nothingness, inconsequential. It's there a few times in verse 1 and 2, isn't it? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. Now this um, this psalm is one of a collection of psalms. We, we see it that it's a, a, song, a song of ascent. And those songs of ascent start back in Psalm 120. Now, a great collection of psalms that, that um, are sung by God's people as they go up to uh, Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship. And uh, you may know Psalm 121, which is the second of the songs of ascent. Just Just flick back there now. And it's a wonderfully encouraging song about God's tireless care of his people Israel. It's hugely encouraging. And uh, six, time at least, six times at least the word keep comes in Psalm 121. Where does my help come from who made heaven and earth? He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. Keep, keep, keep. Verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. He keeps repeating that word, doesn't he? Do you get the message? The Lord is keeping his people. And that is not going to change by the time we get to Psalm 127. That is the reality that, that God is in a covenant relationship with his people and he keeps them. He keeps his church. He keeps Jerusalem. But, but he says, let's just pretend for a moment that you are the ones keeping Israel. Let's pretend that, that you are the ones keeping your life and your blessing. I'll, I'll let go of the reins for a minute. I'll, I'll stop building and I'll stop laboring and I'll stop watching. You be me. Be God. Get working. I want you to realize, he says, that if you think for a second that that sounds like any kind of plan, that it would be wasted work. You would be deluded. You'd have a false sense of security. But in some perverse way, we, we don't agree with God on that, do we? In so many ways and on so many occasions, we, we kind of say deep in our hearts, Lord, I've got this. Leave it to me. There is a sad kind of pride and a restlessness that go together in that attitude. Uh, it's quite cute, isn't it, when children wear their pants, uh, work clothes, um, when the son puts on dad's jacket or when the daughter um, puts on mummy's shoes. It's kind of cute, but, but when does that go too far? When does cute start being a little bit, a bit sad and a bit proud? If they started to intercept mum or dad's work emails 
and type replies and phone up clients and use the company credit card on Lego. If they felt like they were in charge, if they took your Oyster card and and went into London, getting on the train, trying to do your job. If the children of the family said, if we stop, this family will drop, it would be deluded, it it would be proud, I guess. It, It would be just tremendously sad, wouldn't it, if a family operated like that? A sad mix of arrogance and of of restlessness for the children. And as God's children, don't we so often want to do the Father's job? We get delusions of grandeur. We have a false sense of security. We pretend that we're the ones in control. We say, Lord, we've got this. We want to rewrite the Bible We want to change the words in verse 1 and 2. We want to put our names where the Lord is, don't we? I say to myself, unless Chris Roberts builds the house, unless I watch, everything will fall apart. But God is saying, no, that's just not true. Jesus told that great story, didn't he, about the foolish man building house on, a, on, on sand. Busy, 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 wasn't he? Working, I'm sure. He put a lot of effort into it. But somehow, unbeknown to him, the work he is doing is going to go to waste. There's a false sense of security. And these delusions that we have, although we hold on to them, they only bring deeper anxiety in our lives. When I pretend I'm in control, when I can never, ever stop, it's a lesson that God's people have to learn, and they've always been been taught it, they've had to learn it in the past. Just think of the way that God commands his people to keep the Sabbath. One day a week, stopping from work is a reminder to God's people that they can stop. And they should stop. They need to because they are not the everything. You might remember in the wilderness when God's people are told to collect the manna that falls from heaven. They're told to to collect enough for each day, aren't they? No more, no less. And then before the Sabbath day, they're to collect twice as much. So they've got something to eat on the Sabbath. Sounds easy, doesn't it? Just collect enough bread. You've got bread from heaven, your daily bread. It, It just sounds great. Provided every day. But they find it really difficult. They try and gather on the day of rest. They say, don't they, enough with this rest already. When can we get back to work? They're anxious and they don't know how to stop on the Sabbath because they're worried, because they're proud. Their worry is a symptom of pride, of a deluded grandeur. Children of God trying to do the Father's God, saying, if we stop, we will drop, Lord. I wonder why this is why um, we, we find, in some ways, Sunday is quite difficult Sundays are great, aren't they? 
But something in us fights against the idea of the Lord's Day, the idea of stopping from work and of study. We want to say, maybe by the end of the day, oh, Lord, when can I get back to work? Lord, when can I work on that assignment? When can I get back to my spreadsheets? Those jobs won't do themselves. And I and I long to sort them out. I can't keep my hands off them. I can't rest until they're done. It's a sad, proud kind of restlessness. No, no, Lord, I've got this. And it's vain, he says. We're under a false sense of security when we're like that. Because, secondly... We are to trust and rest in the true and living God. We're to trust and rest in the true and living God. So who's the one person that you can't do out? The world we live in um, answers that question in one way. Just look in the mirror. You are the controller of your future. You are the master of your destiny. You have the keys to your own blessing. I heard someone uh, describing how they'd been on holiday to America. They'd been to an American football match. And um, during half time, they, they have cheerleaders, don't they, that come out and, and sing a, a chant or a, a, some kind of encouraging song. And the home team weren't particularly good, it had to be said. But every time it got to half time, the cheerleaders would come out and sing the same chant. You can do it, you can do it, you can, you can. You can do it, you can do it, you can, you can. Even if they were being thrashed, same thing would be called out. That's exactly what the world chants to us, isn't it? It's like a set of cheerleaders. And it shouts to us, you can do it. You can, you can. You are the way to your own happiness. No one else will look out for you. But can you do it? Can you really bear that weight on your own shoulders? I think many of us think we can. Because God is there as a kind of backup when things go wrong. But actually my happiness and my blessing come from me. That is not how God's kingdom works. That is not what life in God's church um, is like. These songs sent are all about life in God's city, God's uh, city Jerusalem. And there are walls and a house in this psalm, aren't there? Uh, we can see kind of, it's about a city. The house is probably the, the temple. And everything from security to eating bread to resting to sleep, it comes from God in this city, doesn't it? It comes from God for his people. He is the one who keeps Israel, the one who keeps Jerusalem, his holy city. He says, you can have a sense of security with me because I am your everything. I am in charge. Just like the manna coming down from heaven, I am the one who gives you all good things. I've given you my son. So how could I fail to not give you everything that you need? I am the true, living, generous God. 
So I, I give you security. I, I give you food that comes from the ground. I give you rest from your enemies. And unexpectedly then, I give you children, he says. Trust in the true and living God because I, I give you children in verse 3. Were you expecting that? Slightly odd, isn't it, how the, the psalm switches to the theme of children. Um, the next psalm after this one, Psalm 128, 28, it kind of pulls out the, the blessings of family life, not just in the, the kind of small home family unit, but, but life in the church with children in the church. And the subject of children comes up here, and they are used as another proof that God is our everything. That actually our greatest strength comes from things that, that we have not earned, things that we cannot do for ourselves, only in things that God gives us. Crucially, children are not something that you, you can work for, are they? They're not something that you can lay for, not something that you can earn. They're a gift. So just, just look at this gift for a moment in, in verse 3 to 5. And um, what he says about children is pretty surprising, actually, to our, our modern Western ears. Because we think children inherit from their parents, don't we? That's the way it goes. But no, here he says, children are a heritage for the parents. Uh, we think children get rewarded by their parents. They, they do. But God says here, no, the children are a reward from the womb for the parents. We, we think children uh, make us old and tired and grey and exhausted. But he says, no, they make us ready for battle. This is not a, a veneered description of parenting. He, he knows the realities of it. But he wants us to see the hidden value of children as a gift from God in family and in the church in Jerusalem. And the descriptions are really fantastic, aren't they? Like arrows in the hand of a warrior. The modern equivalent would be a shotgun, wouldn't it? Or a desert eagle handgun. You can imagine um, discussion maybe after the service one Sunday morning and there's a new baby in church and the usual kind of conversation goes, doesn't it? He's gorgeous. He's so cute. He's got your eyes. And uh, and the dad says, yeah, he's a beauty, isn't he? But be careful because he is a loaded weapon. If you pick him up, make sure the safety catch is on. Be careful where you point him. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with children, with, with arrows, who fills his ammunition belt with them. He talks about them like they are gifts of arms, doesn't he? Why does he talk about children in this way? Well, he gives us a picture in verse 5 of a man who, who goes to the gate for a face-off with an enemy, doesn't he? And um, maybe he's, he's old now and, and he's vulnerable as a man. And the gate was where one of two things could have happened in the city. First of all, it would have been the, the place where an enemy would have attacked first, the weakest place to get into the city. 
But as his enemy approaches, the man, who's maybe a veteran soldier by now, he, he shouts out, doesn't he, on me, boys. And his boys, his sons, his children come to his aid. And his, his boys come out like, like, like work guys, muscly guys. Have you got a problem with our dad? Well, you're gonna, you're gonna have a problem with us. The other thing that might happen at the gate is, is a legal dispute where there would have been legal matters. And, and here again, they appear from behind the walls, don't they, to def- defend their father in court, to, to plead his case, to defend his property and his cause, to give him strength in court. Children are, are a way that God provides protection and rest and peace in the city. They are arrows to the warrior, not, not just for the family, but for the whole city, for the whole church. These children are the sons and daughters, the strength of the whole community. So when we're in church and there are children present, When there are children in the church, we are carrying weapons. Sunday schools are like armories. And as you as a church polish children and sharpen them, as we teach children to carry the armor of God, of truth and of faith and of love, not of war, of the spirit, we are polishing our arrows, polishing our arrows of the gospel of good news. We are saying, let's lock and load. We're polishing the arrows. And the children, they are like long distance projectiles into society to defend and to keep the city. They're the warriors of the future, the most valuable asset that any city has is its people, its sons and its daughters. And the same goes for the church. The ones that God has given to us who defend us, who feed us, who minister to us, are the children of a previous generation now polished and in action. And when I was writing this sermon, um, I was covered in sardine stains after breakfast. Um, I've got a two-year-old, by the way. Um, I had to be up at 5 a.m. to get any peace and quiet. Um, I'm not saying that to, to seem uh, holy. It's just how it is. If you've got kids, you'll know that. Raising kids is, is hard. But later in life, they are the ones to defend the church family The people we will look to for protection and provision and spiritual peace as God's gifts to the church, the children of today, are the arrows that defend us in the future. Um, Augustine's mother, Monica, famously prayed for years for him before he was converted. They said of her, Augustine couldn't outrun his mother's prayers. What an arrow he turned out to be for the church. Elizabeth Bird, she sharpened the poor, sickly, delicate child who became William Wilberforce. Timothy was sharpened 
by his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. One of the most valuable things that God gives to his church, to his city, is its children. And God says, you know this, so just tell me, where have they come from? Look at the ways that your children bless your church throughout generation after generation, your ministers and your servants and your members, your watchmen. Where have they come from? They have been provided by the children that I've given to you, children that you've not earned or labored for, children that have been raised up to defend and feed you. I have filled your city with people. They are a means, but I am the giver of blessing because I am your everything. God has given us the means, hasn't he, in in many ways. Um, The means to have children, uh, the means to work in the church and in our jobs and in our lives. It's not just us sitting back and saying, well, God, you're doing everything, so we're not doing anything. God has given us the means, and yet he is the one who decides how, how those means end out, how effective those means are. So we are to work and we're to study and labor and gather the manner that God, God provides. And we do that knowing that he gives. God arms and protects us through means, but those means aren't indispensable to us. He is. And when we look at our church, children particularly growing up and serving the church, when we look at at babies in the church, we say, Lord, Lord, you have done it all. You are our everything. Um, This is why, isn't it, as we draw to a close, this is why the the church prayer meeting um, that I know you guys have is not really a meeting to pray for the work of the church. It's not really that. Rather, it is the work of the church. Prayer is the work of the church because God is in charge. We know that we don't pray because we're proud and we're deluded about our own work. We get this false sense of security. And if you want to feel anxious in your life, just pretend that you're in control. The only reason that this church will be here in another year's time is because God is watching. The only reason that everything done in this church and in the church that I've come from will not be the grand sum total of a pile of wasted work is that God is building and God is keeping. The only reason why each of our lives won't be a mess this time next year is because God is keeping Israel. And in his great wisdom and with all the joys and the pains of life, he is keeping us. The world says to us, doesn't it, right from the beginning, right from the moment we go to school, to get ahead, you must work. It's good to work. But the world doesn't understand 
that we are not our everything. Work more, get more, more money, more respect, more friends. You can do it, you can do it, you can, you can. You must do it. But this is not the case in God's kingdom. And we know that, don't we, actually? Because none of us have worked one bit to be able to enter into God's kingdom, have we? We have come as sinners who need everything doing for us, ultimately. We rely on God to be our everything. He doesn't call us to clean ourselves up before coming into his kingdom. We have not done anything. We have not worked up anything to impress him or make him bless us. But we have trusted in the true living and generous God. So let's work. Let's work hard in our lives and in church life. But let's not waste our work in a frantic faithlessness. But even in our hard work, rest in him, the one who keeps Israel, the one who watches and builds this city. Let's pray together.